Let's take our Bibles and do our Bible study as we continue in a series that's called The Sayings of Jesus Christ. I'm going to invite you this morning to join with me in John chapter 6. John chapter 6, as we take a time this morning to talk about the lessons from the loaves. John chapter 6, as we start our Bible study this morning, the Gospel of John chapter 6. There's a story that comes out of a man's experience. The gentleman, Thomas Van Beek, had, dis- had developed an empire, an economic business empire there in the Netherlands. And when he was first starting out as a young man, he started to surround himself with just key personnel and individuals. One of those key personnels that he wanted to hire was what at that time would have been called a secretary, office manager, office administrative assistant, whatever you want to call the individual. Somebody who who would be dealing with answering the phone, dealing with people who would come into the business, somebody who would be first contact. And he found a young gal that he thought was absolutely perfect. Her name was Miss Neef. And as the weeks and months went by, he came to rely upon her. She was a hard worker. She was just filled with tact. She was, she was a marvel. He was just absolutely delighted. And years later, attributed a lot of his success to Miss Neef. One of the things he commented that was most unusual about her was her absolute tireless efforts that she would put into work. She would work long hours. She would only take a short break. Early afternoon, she would take just that half-hour break. And he said when she would come back, she'd be like a new person, absolutely ready to go and maintain that stamina through the long work day, day after day, week after week. She was in his employ for a number of years, quite a few years. And one day she came and she said that she was going to retire from this position. She wanted to try something new. It had nothing to do with the work environment. She loved her job. She and the other office staff, they got along well. The pay was very well because they rewarded her for all of her efforts. But she said she just came to a point where she wanted to try something different. So Mr. Van Beek decided he was going to put on a, a party, a going-away party, a retirement party, whatever you want to call it, for this one employee that he had come to rely upon as his right-hand person. And so they came when all of a sudden, here she came in to that party, and then she came in again into the party. And it was the first time that anybody realized that actually Miss Neef was identical twins, They each worked half a day. No wonder she had that ability to be able to do such uh, tireless hours and had such enthusiasm and energy day after day. And nobody knew it for all those years until the day that they said goodbye to her. There was actually two identical sisters that were sharing the same job half a day each. Jesus Christ (coughs) never intended to keep his identity secret. He never intended that others wouldn't know that he, the identical God, was working in harmony with the Father and the Spirit as part of the Trinity. In fact, when we go through the Gospels, Jesus Christ made it very, very clear who he was. 
why he was there. The Gospel of John in particular is really designed to build our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ. It wraps up at the end of the chapter or the book saying that these events, these signs, those several miracles that were selectively chosen for that book, they were given so that we would have faith in Jesus Christ. And so what we read when we go to the Bible and read the book of John, we read that Jesus Christ is revealing to his readers, John is revealing to the readers of Jesus Christ that he is God. That's why this book is such a wonderful book to get new believers started. They'll get to know Christ and who he is. Jesus Christ, we looked at last week, gave a, a wonderful miracle in healing a man who was lame for 38 years. And then as the Jewish leaders were gathered in the temple, he preached a message to follow up that miracle and talked about who he was and how he was equal with the Father. Well, John chapter 6 it all of a sudden starts with miracles once again and the message. But this one's a little bit different, okay? And I want you just to maybe mark your Bibles to keep this highlighted, that there's quite a bit of time between chapter 5 and chapter 6. In fact, as we were studying the entire four Gospels together, we would find that there's about a year's worth of ministry that takes place. In fact, a large section of Luke, a large section of Mark, a section of Matthew would give all the different details, the sermons, the miracles, the preaching tours that Jesus would do between chapter 5 and chapter 6 of the Gospel of John. And so when John 6 opens, we're about a year out. That last Passover before Jesus Christ is going to die, bury, and resurrect. And so we're about a year away from that, that final year of his ministry. And so let's set the scene for John 6. John 6 is very busy days for Jesus Christ. If you go to the other Gospels and you read what's happening right before this story takes off, Jesus has been working, been preaching, been doing tours, preaching tours throughout Galilee as well as his disciples. We also would find out that John the Baptist, who has been in prison for a period of time, is now executed by Herod. And so Jesus hears that news on top of having a rigorous schedule and a busy schedule. So Jesus comes to the conclusion that he and the disciples, after their preaching tours apart together, after hearing news of John, that they need a break. They need to get away from everything just to calm down. And he needs to begin that last year of private training with the disciples. So he and the disciples go into the desert area that is into a more remote area that they could have that rest for a while. But since it's Passover season, a lot of people are traveling around the region. They're on the roads. A lot of, re a lot of people are interested in coming to f see Jesus. They've been hearing about his miracles. They've seen his disciples doing the preaching tours. And so they track him down. They follow him. And they're coming to seek him out, mostly as we read in John chapter 6, verse 2, because of his miracles. They're interested in getting healings. They're interested in seeing their children recovered, recouped, their brothers or sisters, their parents. They're interested in seeing what he's going to do. And Jesus Christ uses the setting of John chapter 6 to not only do miracles, but also to preach a huge message, a fabulous message that is going to challenge the disciples, all the crowds, and I'm using that disciples in really broad terms, as John does, he's going to challenge them to put their faith in him as the Messiah. But not only is this setting challenging the crowds, he also uses this setting to challenge his disciples, his 12. 
Those who are in his intimate circle. He wants to build their faith. He wants to prepare them. Because it's the last year of training. In a year from now, he's going to be leaving. They need to know. They need to trust. They need to, to handle trials. And so what he does in John 6 is not only minister to the crowds, but minister to his closest companions. And in this setting, he's going to test them. As we'll read in a moment, that he asks them, how are we going to take care of all these people? So as to test his disciples, to see where are they, what is their faith, are they ready, what do they need to do to prepare in this last final year. And then what he does is he sends them away that day, and they end up in another storm. A storm that's very similar to one we talked about. One that is severe and serious and sudden, and all of a sudden they're going to be tested. But this time Jesus isn't going to be with them. And so he's going to use that to see where are they at. They alone see many miracles that happen in this chapter. That only later will they tell everybody else about. But let me point out that the miracle of the feeding of the thousands, others are seeing the end results, but they see exactly how it happened. They are in close contact with Jesus as the bread, the fish are being multiplied. They alone will see Jesus walking on the water during that storm that very same night. They alone are going to see Peter get out of the boat and walk upon the water. They alone are going to see all of a sudden that storm suddenly calmed. And on top of that, all of a sudden they are immediately at the other shore. After they've been caught in the storm for multiple hours, unable to make any headways, the sea is calm and immediately it says they're at the other shore in the Gospel of John. So all these the, especially the last four of these miracles that we're highlighting in this chapter, they are very private, so as to train, so as to test, so as to see how the disciples respond. And by the way, this, this whole chapter, the feeding of the thousands, the miracle on the sea, these two chapters are tied together closely is the, via the comments that Jesus makes to test their faith. You see, when they, Jesus comes to the boat late at night, he will say to them, stop being afraid, twice he says at the beginning, at the end, as he's approaching, and when he's in the boat, stop being afraid. He'll even rebuke them. Why did you doubt? Peter, why did you doubt? And then we read a, a phenomenal statement. They were sore amazed in themselves, beyond measure, and wondered, for they considered not the miracle of the loaves. Jesus expected them to have kept in mind the other miracle. While they were on the storm, in the middle of the storm, they were supposed to remember what he had done for them the, earlier that very day. This whole chapter is tied together to build, to test, to develop the faith of the disciples. So you and I, what we want to do is look at from the disciples' perspective. This week, we'll look at from the close companions, what was Jesus doing? What was he, how did he want them to build their faith? And let's make some practical applications out of that. But here's how we're going to do the study. We're going to do this, first of all, the account, and just talk about what happened, and then the application. We'll do that twice. We'll do it with each miracle. So let's, first of all, let's start off with the account of what happened in this story when it comes to the feeding of the thousands. We read together. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is in the Sea of Tiberias, and a great multitude followed him because they saw his miracles, which he did on them that were diseased. And Jesus went up into a mountain, and there he sat with his disciples, and the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was at hand, or nigh. 
When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? And this he said to prove, to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered, Two hundred penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may take a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said unto him, There's a lad here which has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Jesus said, Make the men sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. By the way, very clearly, the males. So 5,000 is just the males. And so you multiply that by, by you know, companions and family members. Many estimate fifteen to 20,000 people. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples and the disciples to them that were sat down. And likewise the fishes, as much as they would. And when they were filled, he said unto the disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. Therefore they gathered them together and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, they said, This is of a truth that the prophet that should come into the world. When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. And then we'll read the rest of it in a few moments. So the account is very simple. And by the way, just to highlight this story, this is one of the very, very few, except for the resurrection and that type of, of last, uh, his end of his life miracles, this is the only one that's recorded in all four Gospels. Very, very important because... There's a big lesson here for the disciples. It is a miracle that we mentioned defeating thousands and thousands of people. Remember when we say a desert place, we're talking more of a rural area. Not just sand, but it says already a grassy area. Not an area that's been developed and one that's big in the farm country. But this is really a rural. Basically, there's not a whole lot of people in this region. Some suggest that the miracle was getting people to be satisfied with only a small amount. You'll read some commentators, some, some uh, websites you go to that the miracle was getting people to have just a very little bit amount of food and they were completely satisfied and they were okay. Really? You give a, little kids a very little amount. You know what it's like during communion service even. If they get a cracker, they want a whole lot more. And so some would say, well, that was the miracle. People were satisfied with just a crumb or two. Some will say, well, the real miracle was that he got everybody to share. Everybody to say, hey, let's, let's give, that little boy gave his lunch, we'll give our lunch, and we'll just do a potluck supper here with everybody sharing their bags of, of whatever they had for sandwiches. That is not what the account says. The account makes it very clear that this is a phenomenal miracle. This wasn't something that was just an illustration or a symbol. It was an actual miracle of feeding thousands. How do we know that? Well, the details are so specific. All the details that he gives, he talks about the, the time of the day. He talks about the place. He gives very specific details about the amount of fish uh, and the amount of loaves. And not only details about the amount, but exactly what type they were when he describes them. And so he's giving a lot of exact figures, a lot exact details. Why then wouldn't he be exact in saying they were, they were, they were all filled and there was a, a multiplication of these, of these items? 
the response to the people, of the people at that time clearly indicates that this is a miracle. They respond. They say this was supernatural. They make the comment that this was so unusual. He's a prophet. Let's make him king. He has done something, done something phenomenal. The very term that is used in this story where he talks in verse 14 about a miracle or a sign, it is an act that is supernatural. It isn't something that is just, wow, great, phenomenal. It is something that is way beyond man's ability, something that is divine. In fact, you look at the story and he gives details that are very specific about the people had as much as they would. That is, they had as many loaves as they wanted to eat. They had as many fish as they wanted to eat. They were filled full. And then he tells us that there's several knapsacks left over, much more than what they started with. My friend, this is a miracle. This was a phenomenal situation. This was something like if you make a comparison, you taking your family, not paying a dollar for anything, going down to Shady Maple and being filled full. And it was, that would be a miracle, and that would be phenomenal. This was an actual God-made miracle, and this is where the people ended up. They were filled full as if it was a smorgasbord, a smorgasbord feast. And so we have the account that's very, very clear that God did, Jesus did, a miracle for these people. People who came to see a miracle. He performed it. We'll talk more about their expectation and how he responds to them next week. But let's talk about the application when it comes to the disciples. There is a clear contrast drawn in this story between Jesus and his disciples, showing that they needed to grow in several areas. They have been preaching, they have been serving for two and a half years. They have just completed a tour of preaching and doing miracles themselves there in the Galilee region. And so they, they have an idea of who Jesus is. They have a suspicion. They've already said, you are the Son of God after that first storm on the sea. And so here they are, individuals that are preaching Jesus, that are going about talking about him, and still they have a lot of growing to do. Individuals who are serving, and Jesus uses this to test them. And the count is, they have to learn some things, and they do learn. They'll show up later on in their lives. But they have lessons to learn. And what were those specific lessons in application for you and me to say, we've been serving the Lord for a period of time, we know our Bibles, but where do we need to grow? How can we improve? Can I give you several areas that Jesus tested the disciples to develop them, to push them further. It was in these practical areas that if we can phrase it this way, let's do it with our first thought. The disciples, you and me, like them of old, we need to feel as Jesus feels. We need to look and say, in my spiritual growth, in my building of my faith, my faithfulness, do I feel as Jesus feels when it comes to other people in need? Let me tell you what I mean by that. They have retreated for a rest, for a break. The crowds come interrupting, breaking up their break, interrupting their rest time, imposing on them, on their day off, on their weekend off. Jesus, in fact, went up on a mountain and sat there with his disciples. But while they're there trying to get away at a, at a mountain retreat, all of a sudden these crowds come. The disciples appear to be irritated. Several times they will say in the Gospels, as we read in the other accounts, send them away, send them away, send them away. In fact, they should go away to take care of their own needs. And so their statements very, make it very clear they're irritated. They, they, they find this an imposition while they're, they're on break. 
But Jesus, by contrast, is moved with compassion. Jesus and the other Gospels, they give us the detail that he was moved with compassion towards them because they were a sheep without a shepherd. They were people who needed assistance, who needed ministering. And so Jesus, as the accounts tell us, Jesus went down from the mountain, met with them in the grassy area, and he taught them. Not only did he teach them, but throughout the rest of this day, he is healing their sick. And so Jesus is ministering just like he's been ministering to the point that he's gotten tired and exhausted. He didn't let up. He just continued on in this moment when he, all of a sudden, is interrupted. Something else beyond his caring, and that is typical of Jesus Christ, is he's also very thankful. He doesn't complain in this account. In fact, it's mentioned twice that he had given thanks. He had given thanks. He had given thanks. Even when imposed upon, even when interrupted, even when all of a sudden things didn't go quite as he was planning it for his disciples, and we know that tongue-in-cheek, he was planning just exactly what happened. But Jesus was extremely thankful to the Father in the midst of an interruption, when his schedule was all of a sudden imposed upon. He was grateful. He was thankful for this opportunity to be able to minister, to feel as Jesus feels. Is that the way we are? But the Bible makes it very clear that faith is actually caring for other people. Other people at inconvenient times. Other people with inconvenient situations. Other people with desperate needs who come to us and we would respond and say, depart, be warm, be filled. And he would challenge us to say, wait a minute, where is your faith? If you don't have the works of compassion, your faith is dead. Disciples, Jesus is saying, Gentlemen, please, these crowds need help. They need assistance. Where is your compassion? Are you feeling as Jesus would feel for those in need? So I ask myself the question and I pose it to you. How do you feel when you see or hear of other people in need? What's your reaction? Do you really care or do you push it out of your mind? Are you an individual that when all of a sudden your schedule is disrupted? by a friend, a relative, somebody asking for a few minutes of advice, seeking just for a friendship, uh, somebody to be an encouragement in a moment. Do you get irritated? Do Do you say, go away, let somebody else minister to them? How do you respond to an individual who is needing encouragement, Do you reach out? Has that been a pattern for you during this time of COVID that you have sent out notes of encouragement to other people or have you been simply looking for them? Do you feel as Jesus feels for those who are struggling, those who are battling when you have opportunity to minister? Do you do it with thankfulness? Do you do it with gratitude or do you grumble? I fear that in my own spirit, sometimes I haven't grown the way that the Spirit of God would have me to grow. I remember one time that I try not to forget about how when I was called on an evening when we were in a snowstorm time, that one of our individuals called me. One of those individuals in our church body who shouldn't have been out in the storm, that they were handicapped and they were wheelchair bound, but their van had one of those lifts in it. And they called me and they said they were stuck in their parking lot. Could I come over and shovel them out? My first thought was, call everybody else. 
Tell the other people's on staff or the deacons to go out and shovel the person out. How come he's calling me? I don't understand. You know, this is my evening to just relax. And I felt frustrated. I remember going over there and asking the individual, why are you trying to go out on a night like tonight anyway? You shouldn't be going out. And they definitely were stuck. They couldn't even get out of their vehicle as they were in a bank there in their parking lot. And I shoveled them out. Not to pat myself on the back. This is a rebuke to me. I shoveled them out, and the whole time I'm shoveling them out, I'm complaining with every scoop. I'm, I'm upset. How could they do this? This was foolish on their part. And I remember afterwards being strongly rebuked by the Spirit of God, in the, actually in the midst of that situation, of what kind of attitude of serving and helping somebody do I have compared to Jesus Christ? You know, friend, when we get an opportunity to serve and to serve others, I know that in my spirit, I would tend towards, this is a disruption. I'll serve you as long as it's in my time frame. Is that the way Christ would have us to be? Is that the way we are feeling as Christ would feel? Do we look for excuses or do we look for opportunities to lend a hand? Jesus Christ not only was feeling compassion for individuals who had needs, but he was grateful in the middle of this trial, this difficulty where he was tired, where he was under the gun and pressure and he had just lost his cousin John. And yet he is grateful enough that all of a sudden he gives thanks when there is this influx of other people. Are you and I individuals that give thanks when all of a sudden we are challenged by circumstances that tire us out. We are challenged by difficulties. We are challenged by government authorities who have responded wrongly towards John the Baptist and his message, or we think they've responded wrongly towards us. Are we, are we thankful when all of a sudden we can't get away from the pressures that are around us? You know what the Word of God tells us? that we're supposed to be thankful. This is the will of God. And I ask myself this question, have I been a model of gratitude during this time of COVID? Or, or you know, have you provided an example of gratitude or have you been a grumbling believer in the light of all the difficulties? The will of God concerning you and me is to be an individual that models Jesus Christ, that emulates him, that is showing thankfulness even in a difficult moment. Do you feel as Jesus feels? That's an area that you may need to grow in, that I know for sure I need to keep on growing in. The disciples surely did, but it's not the only one. Let's phrase it this way. Do you see as Christ sees? Do you see as Christ sees? What I mean by that is simply, we have already mentioned Jesus is moved with compassion the Jesus, Jesus in this story and the disciples are contrasted not only in their emotions, but they're contrasted beyond that. Jesus sees an opportunity to minister. The disciples, they see obstacles to minister. You compare the accounts. Just like here, where we read 200 penny worth, a year's wages. And he ends up saying, but what is that? Uh, the, or the, I'm sorry, he says that, that even that amount could, a year's wages, could only buy crumbs. Andrew's response, he says, here are five barley loaves, two fishes, but what is that among so many? Look at all their little comments. The little comments like this. 
the money, you know, the money that we have, it isn't enough to do the job. Um, among so many, several times they will make the phrase of so many, the multitude, all this people. They don't see opportunity, they just see the obstacle of lots of people there. Um, there's, they talk about, we're in a desert place. This isn't a convenient moment. We have no more than five loaves and two fish. They talk about the day is far spent. And so they're filled with these comments that they keep saying over and over, we don't have enough this. The daylight is almost spent. There's so many people. Look at what we have. It isn't enough. And they see problems. They don't see potentials. Obstacles, not opportunities. Is that the way you look? Are you an individual that looks at things like Christ did or like the disciples? The challenge for you and me is this. You and I would often say, oh, wait a minute. If I were there, I would have turned to Jesus Christ and I would have said, oh, Jesus, this isn't a big problem for you. you know, I, would have, I would have really just trusted him right away and not seen or said anything about those obstacles. Really? Really? Is that the way you respond right now during COVID? Do you respond with absolute faith and gratitude and confidence? Are you an individual that all of a sudden the level of stresses that could be upon you, it's not bothered you? It's not been a challenge. You've been putting complete trust and faith in Jesus Christ. Hey, you, have you been an individual that has been filled with saying, Lord, what an opportunity? Or have you gone and complained in your prayer life even? And given the negative and the obstacles... Are you one that all of a sudden says, hey, this is such a great opportunity to share my faith. Uh, okay, we, we can't communicate the way we normally communicate. We can't go where we normally could go. But I'm going to seek out and find an opportunity to share the gospel. Or have the obstacles made you to sit back? And that's all you've been looking at is, oh, we can't do this. Or we can't do that. Without looking at what we can do for the Lord Jesus Christ. The disciples were individuals who, if they were living today, they would have been the type that would have given reasons for not reaching out and encouraging others. They wouldn't have been the ones that are Christ-like, like saying, okay, let's take the opportunity. Let's, let's call. Let's send a note. Let's do something. Let's share my faith. And let's reach out to somebody in the ways that we can that are, that are proper and safe and a good testimony. Do you feel as Jesus feels? Do you see as Jesus sees? If not, we've got some growing to do. And I dare say, all of us have some growing to do. We are too often like his disciples. Can you give a third challenge? The third challenge is give what you got. Give what you've got. Well, in this story, as it unfolds, they all of a sudden, we know the story. Jesus says, hey guys, how are you going to figure this out? He did this, not because he didn't know, we already read in verse 5, but verse 6, he wanted to prove them, wanted to test them. Are you willing to turn to me? Are you willing to give what you've got? With the idea that this is an opportunity. And so he challenges them. They come up, and they have the boys' lunch. And when we look at the boys' lunch, John gives us details that the others don't. John tells us that it's just poor man's bread. It's pancake-type loaves that are made out of barley. This wasn't the best uh, of the loaves. This was common man, poor man's bread. This was, this was what most people had. This wasn't those breads with all kinds of fruits or all kinds of specialty breads. This, this would just be like, you know, plain bread. 
this wouldn't be like a specialty coffee. This would just be a plain coffee. This wouldn't be a special fish. In fact, he talks about these are small pickled fish. This isn't some great big beastie fish that would normally feed the thousands. Not in a boy's lunch. In fact, as we go through the account, this is a kid's lunch. This is something that would be for the youngster. This isn't much. It's very clear. Uh, We've got this food, but what is that among so many people? And so these individuals, they, you know, they, they need to learn this lesson. The disciples, that Jesus uses what's given to him. He isn't always involved in looking at what is the quality or the quantity. Now again, we want to give them our very best. and want to give them as much as we can. But that's the story. That if we give what we've got to Christ, he can use it. He can manufacture. He can minister with Our plain old skills, gifts, and talents. And the disciples needed to learn that. They needed to learn that they just give what they've got and let God do the miraculous. Now, again, that doesn't mean we give Jesus Christ junk. We were just talking about somebody. I was sharing with them how some people give. They give to God's ministries. They give to churches. The junk that they don't want. And I relate how years ago we ended up, somebody gave us a piano. And when I and two other men went to pick up this piano in somebody's yard, literally, when we picked up the piano, all the keys fell away from the rest of the frame of the piano. And their thought was, well, you said you would take it. And we did to the dump. And some people, that's what they would give to God. They would give something that they have totally exhausted and used up and it needs to go to the dump, but I'll give it to God instead. And aren't I being charitable? Well, you and I know better than that. We don't give God the leftovers and the junk of our life. That's, that's not what we're saying. But we give him what we've got. And anything that we have that he has loaned to us, it is usable. There's that passage that comes in, a passage about giving monies And it makes this comment, it is accepted according to what a man has, not according to what he doesn't have. God uses what we give him based on what we have, not the idea that, well, I would give thousands and thousands if I had millions. No, God will take our tens of tens as we have hundreds. He can use it, and he will use it. What we're supposed to do is give him what we've got. Give him the best that we've got. Let him work with it. And it may not be much in the eyes of others, but he can use it. He can use you. You and I may not be much in the eyes of others. We don't have all the gifts, even talents. If you're like me, we don't have all that musical or all that management or all that business enterprise that other individuals. If you're like me, you don't have all that sports ability and that talent that others have. But we can still give what we've got and Christ can use it. Maybe that's where you're limited. Maybe you are an athlete. Maybe you are a musician. But you don't get necessarily the best of grades in other areas as you do your best. That's okay. You're doing your best and you're giving the Lord what you've got. Give what you've got to Christ. That's what God did with Moses. Moses, if we recall in the Old Testament story, he was a man who couldn't speak well as he started off in his ministry, and he used that as an excuse. He struggled with his anger and his temper, but God used him as he yielded. We read the story of Samson, 
who used something so simple as a jawbone of an ass and God empowered him to be used at that moment in that, in that time to have great victories over the enemy. We read a Gideon who says he was the least of his father's household and he goes into battle with a small number of individuals and all they go in with a weaponry were horns and lanterns. And God uses them. Something small and something common, every day, found anywhere, and God can use that and multiply it. He can take a small red-headed boy who was forgotten by his father when the prophet came to anoint, and the dad lined him up twice, and then, oh yeah, by the way, I do have another boy. And God used that David with his sling, the skill set that he had developed that others may not have thought it was much, but God used it in a great victory over Goliath. We come into the New Testament and Matthew didn't have a lot of skills, a lot of talents other than he was a tax collector. And he used the opportunity that he had to have a meal at his house to introduce his friends to Jesus Christ. He was hospitable and God used that in a phenomenal way. There's the woman who comes and she doesn't give much in the sight of others, but Jesus makes sure that she is spoken of throughout years and years as an example of generosity when she gave a mite, the smallest of the coins. What about you? What do you have that you can give to Jesus Christ to use? If you're like the disciples, they're in their last year of ministry and Jesus is trying to get a hold of their heads and their hearts. And he's trying to catch them up to where he wants them to be. And he says, listen, I need you to be usable. You need to give what you've got so I can use you. You need to see as I see so I can use you. You need to feel as I feel so I can use you. Where you at, friend? Do you have an area to grow in some of this feeling and seeing and giving? Do you, do you, are you holding back even right now? The men are contacting a number of you and saying, hey, what about working in the church as an officer? What about helping here? Are you going to give the Lord what you've got? Consider that as an opportunity to see as Christ sees. You see, the, the disciples needed a challenge. We need challenges to not only to feel as Christ feels, to see as he sees, to give what we've got, but also do what you can. Do what you can. In this story, without trying to, uh, to bring something that's not there, the disciples do take an active role in the miracle of the feeding of the thousands. Now, they don't do the multiplying, but they do the human ministry aspect. They do what they can. They are told to direct the people to sit down. They are told to distribute the food items. They do. They are told to collect the leftovers. They do. In other words... They realize and they have to learn that growing faith does involve at times active participation. Actively doing something, not just sitting by and letting others do. Get involved. Serve. Say yes you know, to an opportunity to be able to minister. And so Jesus Christ makes it clear that we do what we can and leave the results to him. Oh, that can be in, in multiple areas that we talk about and we've challenged in witnessing. I can't see him get, get saved by my pressure. I let the Spirit, but we need to witness the work. You need to do your job and be ethical and let God use that as a testimony that you would, you would adorn the gospel by the way you work. 
the idea of raising godly kids, we know it. it's a work of God. But we've got to do our part of training, disciplining and discipling and modeling before them. What about the aspect of seeking reconciliation with somebody where there's an offense? We've got to make the first effort. We've got to go to them. What about the Word of God making impact? Well, we've got to study it. Then we've got to teach the Word of God. But we let the Spirit of God use that Word in the lives of our co-workers, our friends, in the Bible study, our neighbors. And we let God bring about the conviction. Somebody who needs to be challenged, yeah, we're supposed to do our part. Graciously go to them and try to set the, the bone, in the, the spiritual bone in one who is overtaken in a fault. We're supposed to do our part as a spouse, as a mate. We're supposed to love and respect and to submit and let God do the work. Our times, our treasures, giving encouragement. Yes, God is the one who can bring somebody out of depression. But maybe you and I need to make that first effort of letting them know that they, that they are worthy. And they are a valued individual that others haven't totally forgotten that you care about them. There are so many practical areas that we can make application of doing what we can do. The Word of God continues in the story. It talks about all of a sudden these thousands being fed. If you were one of those 12 and you were gathering up the baskets, wouldn't you be excited knowing where you started and seeing where we're ending up and everybody's filled and they're full and the crowd is so stirred they want to take him by force and make him a king? This is an exciting day. This is one of those days that I'm sure when, they, when he said to the disciples, I know we've been tired, I know we've been exhausted, but I want you to row across the other side that they said, you know what, I'm pumped. I'm so excited about what I've just seen. Yeah, and I was so tired at the beginning of the evening, but seeing what you just did, being involved with the way this, this all panned out, we've been rejuvenated and we'll get into that boat and we can, say, and we can get across the other side. And being enthusiastic and being revitalized and refreshed by being involved with what Christ has done. The disciples are in the middle of all this enthusiasm, all this excitement. And it's great, but everything's going to change within a matter of a few hours. All of a sudden, their enthusiasm is going to turn to despair. They're all of a sudden going to be facing a storm, another one that's life-threatening to them. As we read in the account... John chapter 6, and I already read part of it, where it said, Jesus therefore perceiving that the crowds would come, take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain, himself alone. And when evening was now come, his disciples went down into the sea and entered into a ship and went over to the sea toward Capernaum. And it was now dark and Jesus was not come to them. And we read in the other Gospels, Jesus was watching them. He was seeing them toiling. He was seeing them caught in the middle of this storm, having gone only a few furlongs. So when they had rowed about 25, 30 furlongs, they see Jesus walking on the sea and drawing nigh to the ship. And they were afraid. They said, it's his ghost. It's his spirit. He's dead. We're going to die. But he said unto them, it is I. Be not afraid. Then they willingly received him into the ship. And immediately the ship was at the land where they were going. So we take the account. We look at it. And it's a challenging account. It's a story that uh, it causes the fishermen to be afraid. It challenges them that, that all of a sudden 
here they are, they're, they're fearing for their lives and Jesus is going to approach them and a couple, at the beginning as he's approaching and at the end as he's getting in the boat, he says to them a couple times, stop being afraid, stop being afraid, stop being afraid. And he makes the statement, you have little faith. We go a little bit further and we, make, we understand that Jesus expected more of them. He didn't want them to be so fearful. He's challenging them. How come you're, you're so fearful? You know, you've been in this moment before. You were here months ago. And I took care of the storm. And it goes on. And in Mark, and maybe if you only read this one verse, you would think, ooh, wow, this is positive. The way it states about the disciples. They were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure. And they wondered, ooh, wow. But it's not a positive. It's a negative statement. Read the rest of the, uh, the story. It says, For they considered not the miracle of the loaves, for their heart was hardened. Whoa! Jesus is fully expecting more out of the disciples than what they come up with that night. He didn't want them to be fearful. He didn't want them to be amazed in themselves beyond measure and wondering, marveling what's going on. He didn't want them to forget the miracle of the loaves. He didn't want them to be hardened. By the way, this is only time in Scripture it's used of the disciples. Every other time, heart was hardened is using of the believers, the leadership, the Jewish folk who who are antagonistic to him. And the statement is basically the same as those Jewish leaders. They were all of a sudden dense. They were blinded to their own need at that moment. Now, that's not to say that they they weren't believers, but they weren't behaving the way they should. They weren't growing the way they should. They, they, they hadn't matured the way he expected them to mature even earlier that day. These individuals disappointed Jesus Christ. And that's because they hadn't grown through the trial. They hadn't grown the way he, he thought they should grow. Can I ask a question for you and me? Do we get so busy at times... Do we get so, so busy with the things of this life that we forget to focus on changing spiritually for the better? Are there times in our life that the problems so intimidate us that all of a sudden we are more focused as a, as, on an escape from the trial and the trouble than saying, how can I grow through this? What is he teaching me? How do I count it all joy? Are there situations that all of a sudden we get so angry, so frustrated, we are in such a panic, or we get to pity, that all of a sudden we don't bother, we don't bother addressing our anger, our frustrations, that we just say, oh well, I'm excused from growing because of the difficulty I face. Do, do you ever come to the point that you just, you get so angry, you lash out at other people? And instead of comparing to Scripture to say, how can I improve and change in the way I just talked to my kids, my family members, my spouse, that you just say, oh, well, that's the way it is. But Jesus expects more of us. He expects us to grow, to mature, to improve, to develop more faith and trust and graciousness and compassion. 
does it ever happen in your life that you get so preoccupied with stuff that you don't even take time to meditate, to get alone for prayer and meditation with Christ because you're just too busy to spend time and wait upon the Lord? Has it ever happened in your life that you've become so spiritually proud? Oh, now I'm getting where I'm meddling. But you've become proud where you have said, I'm good enough. I don't need to change in the way I talk about other people. I don't need to change. I'm good enough in the way that I talk to other people. I'm okay. I'm good enough in the way that I've responded towards the circumstances we're in. I'm okay, and that's a matter of spiritual pride. When you and I come to the point that says, we don't need to grow, we don't need to change, we don't need to improve, we're good enough. It's good enough the way that we talk to each other in our marriage. It's good enough the way that I obey and respect my parents. If you have come to that point, that is a matter of either you have reached perfection or you have hardened your heart to spiritual growth. To where God is trying to mature you and mold you. It's a matter of pride. Spiritual pride or hardening of our hearts. The aspect that some would say, well, you know, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. I, I, I don't get as angry as they do. I don't get as frustrated as... That's not the standard. You can always find somebody who's doing worse spiritually than you. Your standard is to become like Christ, to feel like, to act like, to give like, to minister like Jesus Christ. And when we come to the point where we don't think we need to grow day by day and don't focus on growing day by day, we have hardened our hearts. We are becoming like the disciples who needed to be put in a storm to bring them to the end of themselves and to whittle down some of that pride. So Jesus Christ, he deals with them. He challenges them. And maybe that's the challenge we need to grow in our faith, to mature for what's ahead. We better be maturing right now at this moment. We better be maturing in our compassion, in our seeing opportunities, in our giving to Christ, in our attitudes, our words, our deeds. So let me bring you to a final thought here that I want to develop more. We need to think more God thoughts. Not only see as he sees, feel as he feels, give what we've got, do what we can do, but we need to think more God thoughts every day. By that I simply mean this. We need to reflect on growth. How do I grow? And one of the ways to do that is remember what God has done in the past. Remember what God has done. They forgot the loaves. They forgot how God had ministered to them that day. They had evidence after evidence of God caring for them. God carrying them through storms. God helping them through difficulties. God showing he has power over creation. That very day he showed it over nature and the multiplication. They had experienced God's um, personal powers so much. And they had claimed he's the son of God. But all of a sudden, they forgot. 
they forgot and they, they forgot how God has worked in the past and they had the theology, but they didn't have the trust. They had the facts, but they didn't have the faith. And Jesus Christ challenges them in this passage when they turn to panic and doubt, like Peter, like the rest in the boat. You and I need to take moments and remember what God has done. Remember how he's worked. Maybe we need to ask ourselves these questions. Do you remember other circumstances where God worked in your favor to maneuver, to manipulate, to create opportunities? Can you recall a time when you were desperate for wisdom and advice and counsel and you went to the Lord and he gave you, he gave you the answers you needed? Do you remember a time when you were afraid to witness but all of a sudden you started doing it and God gave you the words and God helped you to be impacting in that person's lives? Do you remember how you had a difficulty with a person And God gave you the grace, gave you the wisdom to go and to deal with that and to resolve the situation. Do you remember how God has answered prayers? Do you remember how God strengthened you in previous trials? Do you remember how God gave added blessings to your family that you didn't expect on top of what you had asked for? He was faithful. He was loyal. He was gracious to you. How God blessed in a ministry that you got involved in. And then you would sit back today and say, oh, I don't know if he can use me. I don't know if he's present. He is. You need to think more God thoughts. You need to remember what God has done in the past so you grow in the present by trusting him, by having more faith and faithfulness to him. So you and I, Let's remember this week. We need to remember what God's done in the past. We have to remember what God's doing in the present. This is part of God thoughts. God thoughts is thinking, God has been faithful. Great is your faithfulness. You have been so, so gracious to me. You have used me despite myself. God, I can, I can give you more. I can feel. I, I can do what I can do. And then you need to remember here what God is doing in the present. Do you, do you remember in this story? What Jesus does while the men are in the boat? Do you remember why Jesus even puts them in the boat? Now, we know from this story that they wanted to make him king. But we all know that if they had made him king at this moment, this wouldn't have been good. Jesus, he all of a sudden, he leaves the area suddenly, gets away from the crowd, sends his disciples away. Why? What the, that's good for them. They don't need to get caught up with this crowd. They, they need to be away. They, they have been so fickle already that even when they saw him transfigured, they wanted to stay there. They got caught up in the moment. He knows his disciples. You need to get away from this crowd because he knows that at this moment, his hour has not yet come. They're not ready. The disciples need to, need to mature. And so Jesus, in this moment, he's working on behalf of the disciples, trying to prepare them for what's ahead. He's going to put them in a trial, in a troublesome time, to help develop them a little bit more. He's seeking their best. In the present, he's seeking their best. Isn't that what he's doing right now? Isn't COVID God seeking our best and we complain about it? And we get angry about it? Isn't it God trying to get our attention so we grow more? 
Do you remember what he's doing at the present? God's working in our lives. God's trying to mature us and to mold us. But remember what he's doing as well. He's praying. He's praying. That's what he did up on the mountain. What's he doing for us today? Oh, we can go to the book of Hebrews. He ever lives to make intercession. He is making intercession for us. He's praying for you to grow, to become conformed to his image. You need to think more God thoughts as each day goes by. As every moment goes by, we need to take some times during the day and, and somehow trigger our mind with an alarm, with a note, with some visual aid. Think a God thought. Where am I at? Have I grown this day? Am I improving? Am I starting to doubt? Remember what he's done in the past. Remember what he's doing at the present. Remember the promises or the prediction. Call it what you will. Jesus in this text, he says, go before me to the other side. Implicit in that statement is you're going to get there. You're going to get there. You know, you're ahead of me. You're going to survive. Remember the words of Christ. I mentioned this two, three weeks ago. I made this comment when we talked about the other storm. Write out those notes of encouragement, those little statements. Did you? Did you take the time so that you could grow spiritually by doing some application of the word of God. Write down that notes that you need. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. That he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins. That he will supply your needs. Write down his promises that I can do all things. That it shall be open to me. That as I train up the child he will not depart from it. That God is faithful. That he will not suffer to me to be tempted above that I am able. This is part of growing. And not hardening our hearts making effort, doing what we can to have God thoughts in our mind so we are sensitive and growing in our faith, not just, there we are floating along, the same old, same old, day after day, go to work with the same attitude, day after day, run our homes the same way, lose our temper from here to there, all of a sudden speak harshly to one another. No, we're to be growing and maturing and improving in our faith, in the outworking of our faith. Think God thoughts. Think those God thoughts that remind you day by day of this growth aspect. What has God done in the past? What is he doing for me in the present? What has he promised me? <clears throat> we need to be maturing. We started off talking about two sisters. Twin sisters, identical twins, who do, they produced a lot of work because they shared the load. Do you know something? God wants to share a workload in your heart and your life so you can become more productive. He wants to multiply your witness. He wants to multiply your impact in your life. What that involves is you doing your part. Your part is very simply doing what we talked about, the lessons of the loaves for the disciples. Where you all of a sudden say, I need to work on feeling as Christ feels. I need to work on seeing the way Christ sees. I need to work on giving what I've got for the Lord to use. I need to work on doing what I can do. I need to work on God thoughts. God thoughts that will help me to say, I need to grow. I need to grow. I need to grow. I need to grow. So as you wrap up this morning, before we totally close down in prayer, and then do our announcements. Ask yourself, what are you going to do this week to make improvement? 
What are you going to do this week to challenge yourself to grow beyond where you've been this last week, month, or years? What are you going to work on this week so that you can become more the man, the woman, the teenager, the child that God wants you to be? Lord, work in our hearts. Help us to remember the lessons of the loaves. Father, I mean that from the depths of my heart. Help me and help my friends not just to be what we always are. Help us to mature. Help us this week to grow in our graciousness. Help us to grow in our positive thoughts. Help us to grow in seeking opportunities to minister. Help us to grow in stepping out by faith, in not panicking, in not pouting, in not self-pity. Help us to remember more of what you've done and what you're doing. Father, I pray, help us, like the disciples of old, to grow beyond where we're at right now and to mature. In Jesus' name, we pray this, we beg this, Help us not to forget the challenge of the lessons of the loaves so we can become more like Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. God bless you. I want to take care of just a few announcements for those of you still with us. We mentioned next week we're going to open up the services. We are doing it in a restricted fashion. By that, we explained in a letter, in an email, several of you have been calling and letting us know, asking questions. We will spread out. We will try to take those precautions. And again, we are doing them for these reasons. We want to be safe and healthy to all in our body. Those who may be more in a, in a category of more susceptible, we want to be cautious. We want to be courteous to those who may come, but they have some apprehensions. We want to make sure we have a good testimony, a testimony that we aren't flippant and uncaring towards community who may come to join us, that we are taking precautions and that we're not just you know, uncaring to do our own thing and just do as we want. And so with all that involved, we will take precautions. If you have questions about those restrictions, we can send you that information if you didn't get it by chance. Or uh, as well, we can email that to you. But let me remind you, please call and let us know you're coming. That way we know if we need to multiply the service, we need to know what other steps we need to take in order to provide that atmosphere. And again, it'll be restricted. We're, We're asking that we don't do a lot of the normal handshaking and hugging. We're asking that people keep some distance. We'll even block off parts of the every other pew. We're asking that you're being very